And on the inside of our bulletin, there's a QR code. If you would uh, just be so kind to scan that and tell us about you, we'd love to be acquainted with you. I think it's a good practice sometimes. It's always good to pray, but it's, if we could just go to the throne of grace one more time before we open his word. Our Father, we would pray as simply as those words fit us for heaven. And we pray, our Father, this evening as simply as in something that would mirror the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples that your name would be holy, that your kingdom come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this night that you would give us that bread that we need. We pray that you might forgive us our trespasses as as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we say with joy that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We bring this to you in the name of our son praying that by your spirit this word would be applied to our hearts tonight. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Have you ever heard the saying that truth is stranger than fiction? It may not be, but truth and speaking the truth is a priority for God. You might say it's God's priority. In fact, the Son of God said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Even John Murray says that there is a sanctity to truth. And truth and truth telling were not intended to be strange, but normal in the world as God originally created it for us. But, and I'm referring back to last week, this is a two part sermon, if you will. Ever since the fall, we have this tendency to look out for ourselves first. Not loving our neighbors, we should by lying, by deceiving, and not speaking truthfully or forthrightly to him or her. Pastor Jamie knows he had a moment. He asked me this week how something I was, was going. And I instinctively reacted and said, great. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth and he was walking out of the office, you know what I realized? Beep. Wrong. Lie. Not true. False. Wrong answer. I almost chased him down, but I see him every day. And so anyway, later that night, I, text, or I texted him or emailed him. I said, brother, I, I need to confess this. You asked me how something was grow, going. And I reacted. Have you ever said something you didn't think? You just spoke without thinking, right? One of those two great failures in the world, right? But ever since the fall, we have this tendency out of self-interest, pride, avoiding conflict, avoiding responsibility, 
or aggressively going after each other, either avoiding responsibility or attacking, weaponizing words, even truth itself. By lying, by deceiving, by not speaking truthfully to our neighbor. But because God is true, the gospel calls us to more than not only lying and deceit. It's not enough to sit on our hands or put a hand over our mouth and never speak again and think that we've fulfilled the letter or even the law or the spirit of this commandment. God as true then, because he's true, the gospel calls us not only to more than not only lying and deceit, but to this holy, edifying speaking of the truth to one another. So tonight we return again to the ninth commandment. Turn to, if you will, page 61 in your Bible. Exodus 20. God is speaking. It said, and God spoke all these words, verse 1, saying, I am the Lord your God. This is the prologue. Let me read this first. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you might say, before there was law, there was grace. God has said, I've rescued you. You're my rescued people upon whom I've set my favor And so we come to this ninth word. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you'll notice neighbor will appear twice in the 10th commandment. We'll see that next week. We've kind of made it all the way through the first eight commandments and we see neighbor, verse 16. We'll see neighbor two times next week in verse 17. And so we come to this ninth of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, and I want to expand upon this, building on what we covered last Lord's Day morning. We're in the second table of the law, and I want to take advantage of the larger catechism for a moment. And I want to ask, we want to ask from question 95 in the larger catechism, it says this, of what use is the moral law to all men? The moral law is of use to all men, number one, to inform them of the holy nature and will of God, two, and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly, and then three, to convince them of their disability, another word for inability, to keep it, and of the sinful pollution of their nature their hearts and lives, to humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clear sight of the need that they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. That's question 95 in the answer. Now I want to read question 97 in the answer. So if you're a Christian, think about this. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? We just asked the question, what use is the moral law to all men? Now, I want to answer this with respect to the regenerate, those who are in Christ. Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ are delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, 
Yet besides the general uses common to them with all men, question 95, it is of special use, that is this moral law, to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it, that is the moral law, and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness. I lied, he did not. I deceived, he did not. You bore false witness against your neighbor, he could not. And let me finish this. It is also then to express the same, that is thankfulness, in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience the moral law what is it what general use of is it to all men what special use is it to the regenerate so our concern here in the second table of the law the fifth through the tenth commandments is our duty and love towards our neighbor and our obedience here is not motivated out of receiving God's favor. In fact, the context, again, of Exodus 20 is that Israel has received God's favor. They are the object of God's love. And so he says, now, as my special people, this is how you are to walk. And so now, once again tonight, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Maybe some of you learned it as you shall not what? You shall not lie. But the rendering in the ESV right here on page 61 is near the original text. That's really fair to it. But to be truthful, in Leviticus 19.11, you read these words. You shall not lie to one another so that command So that commandment to not lie to one another is actually biblical. It's included, it's assumed in this ninth commandment here in Exodus 20 and verse 16. Lying is forbidden. Now kids, this in a way is intended to be a sermon, especially for you. And I want, so if you're under 18, I'm really wanting your eyes particularly. And then it's kind of a bit of a kid's sermon, but it's for all of us, okay? So I want to think, go back, if you can remember the four points from last week. And I'm going to ask a question or two that I'm hoping you'll answer during our time together. So real quickly, if you were not present last Sunday morning, I hope this will draw you into our study. Number one is we think about the ninth commandment, which is more than not lying. We want to see the one true God as the starting point, indeed the ending point, of the ninth commandment. If we speak of the evil of falsehood and the virtue of truth, we must begin with God. So that's where we start. Secondly, we want to see what is it that the ninth commandment forbids. It forbids lying. It forbids deceit, right? And for the most part, I don't know if you've thought about this, for the most part, the way the way we break this commandment is we is through our words, all right? Now, we may do this with gestures. You say, which way did he go? And I know the person went that way, and I point that way. When I have no reason to speak or to 
gesture in untruth. Another thing, someone says, how are you doing? And you're absolutely sick at heart, and you give them a wan smile as though, I'm really fine, and you're really not. I mean, there's a time, right? There's a time to not burden someone with the whole of the pain we're dealing with, but within the body of Christ, this idea of speaking the truth to one another, we have that freedom. We have that privilege. We have the benefit of a place where we may love one another that way, where we may be real with one another. We may speak the truth that way. But so first... What's the starting point of the ninth commandment? And that is God is the one true God. What is the second point here? And that is that the ninth commandment forbids lying, deceit, bearing false witness against our neighbor. And then thirdly, what does the ninth commandment require? It requires us speaking the truth to our neighbor. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, I got excited realizing that afterwards at 6.30, when we sing all the songs of the Messiah, where do the words come from? Where do they come? They come from this whole deposit of truth called the Bible. We're going to be singing Scripture. You're going to be singing Scripture if you hang around afterwards. You're going to be singing the best that points to Jesus our Messiah, okay? But the ninth commandment requires then that we speak the truth to our neighbor. It's not enough, again, to put a hand over our mouth and be silent because we're so afraid that we'll hurt someone or everyone thinks I'm stupid when I open my mouth or sit on our hands as though I'm just not gonna get in trouble. I'm just gonna sit here and never let my mouth be a cause for pain. No, the calling here is not simply to not be deceitful to our neighbor, but not to destroy them, but in fact, to build them up. And then finally, the fourth point is, at the heart of the ninth commandment, the very motive for our obedience is that we are members of one another. There is this mystical union that if we are Christ, we're one another's. And that's as real as if you could measure this podium and you could say it's 27 and 3 eighths inches, that that's empirically and verifiably true, that in the body of Christ, you and I, you and you and her and him are members of one another. And so our speaking must reflect that the way we speak with one another should have this holy communion, this holy coordination of care and regard for one another. So let's drill down into each of these over our remaining time. But remember this, right? God, the one true God, is the starting point for the ninth commandment. Then second, here's the outline. We're gonna look at what does the commandment forbid Third, what does the commandment require? And then at the heart of the ninth commandment, and even as Paul fleshes this out in Ephesians 4.25, is this. We are members of one another. We are members of one another. We are blood-bought brothers and sisters. Well, first, the one true God. 
You know that the Lord Jesus said in one of his seven I am sayings, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life in John 14, 6. I want to read to you what John Murray says about John, the Apostle John's use of the word truth. Truth is a noun, true is adjective. He says, we need to bear in mind that the true and the usage of John, or by John, is not so much the true in contrast with the false, or the real in contrast with the fictitious. It is the absolute as contrasted with the relative, the ultimate as contrasted with the derived, the eternal as contrasted with the temporal, the permanent as contrasted with the temporary, the complete in contrast with the partial, the substantial in contrast with the shadowy. And he says early in John's gospel, John 1, 17, John advises of, he, he, he advises us of this truth when he says this. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say here, don't miss the truth. Don't miss entirely to suppose that truth here is contrasted with the false or the untruth. Because the law was not false or untrue. What John is contrasting here is the partial incomplete character of the Mosaic dispensation, dispensation with the completeness and the fullness of the revelation of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. It's why John prayed in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In a sense, this is the starting and ending point for the ninth commandment. And kids, you know that there are things that God hates, Proverbs 6. And two of those seven, six that he hates, seven that are an abomination to him, one is a lying tongue, and another is a false witness who breathes out lies. In Paul's letter to Titus, as he begins the letter, he says something extraordinary. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Now underscore that, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, no godliness apart from a knowledge of the truth, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies. That makes sense. God never lies. He's never of untruth, what is false. And therefore, Paul may say, that for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, he's writing to them. And then when Paul is building his case for justification by faith, he says this in Romans 3, 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And in Hebrews 6, verse 18, the writer says there are two immutable things. They cannot go from vapor to gas to liquid. 
But in the economy of God's redemption, here you go, two immutable things. The unchangeable character of his purpose and the unchangeable oath that guarantees the fulfillment of that purpose and the promises associated with it. And he says, with these, it is impossible for God to lie. God's fidelity, his truth faithfulness, is the punctuation to Paul's trustworthy saying in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even Balaam would say in Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not do it? The reality is, as we sung these Christmas carols tonight and we'll be singing the songs associated with the Messiah at 6.30, these are testament to God's veracity, his commitment to truth, that he has fulfilled his promises to bring a Messiah to the world. It was not just casual speak when the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 121, you shall give him the name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It is God, the one true God, who is the starting point of the, of the ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's revisit what the ninth commandment forbids. It's no less than lying, as we'll see, or not lying. It's more, but for now. By word, by gesture, by expression, God forbids lying, deceit, bearing false witness against our neighbor. Kids, you know this, right? Hate is a strong word. That's a strong emotion. But Solomon, as he's giving instruction to his children, says there are some things that God hates. And it's far easier to affirm, affirm 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But Solomon says, no, actually, that he is love is not in contradiction with the fact that he hates those things that are so counter to his character and his divine attributes. He hates lying lips. Where does this spirit of deceit from? We looked at this last week, just a moment. Do you remember, do you remember kids that, saying, I said, let's try to memorize this. First the root, then the what? First the root, then the fruit. You got it. Very good. First the root, then the fruit. It all starts with the what? It all starts with the heart. Right. And so we ask as we're thinking about what does this commandment say no to? What does it forbid? It forbids lying. And so you ask them, what does it mean to lie? It forbids the bearing of false witness. It's to say what is not true. Now, to be clear here, and I want to be very careful with this. I said this last week. 
in an age of authenticity and sincerity, to be truthful does not require us to say everything we think or know. We clear about that. To be obedient to this commandment does not mean in every situation we must say everything we think or know. But it does mean as we understand the relationship in the context that we are to say that which is reasonably expected. So kids, when mom and dad ask you how your homework is going, have you cleaned your room? Um, and we've seen this with our granddaughter, the back and forth. Okay, okay, you've gone to the bathroom. All right, now you've come back. Did you wash your hands? No, so she runs back. Okay, come back out again. Did you flush the toilet? No, she's got to go back again. So that parent has a right to ask those things of a five-year-old, okay? But this commandment is not licensed to, for us to put our finger in everyone's chest and say, you owe me an answer to any question that I'm going to ask of you. It requires truth where truth must reasonably be expected. All right? That's what it means. To lie is to tell what is not true. It's to speak what is false. It's to say that what is false is true or to say what is true is false. It's to call good evil and evil good. And both are lying. Now, what does it mean to deceive? It's to make someone believe something that is not true. Pastor Jamie said to me, Mark, how's this going? Great. Wrong answer. Wrong. Stupid. Big ass on the chest. Like, loser in that moment. Like, not thinking. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I almost was like, no, hey, let's correct that, okay? And my brother had every right to ask me, <laughs> hey, how's that going? It's a matter of that's between us that's important. And in that moment, I deceived him. By inadvertently causing him to think something that was patently, demonstrably not true. Now, the first part of Ephesians 4.25, let's turn there, if you will, for a moment. Turn to Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, look at this in terms of applications for the new life, in Christ, where he begins to get very specific, putting away falsehood, clearly a reference to the ninth commandment, all right? Exodus 20, the scope is our neighbor, but here it's our fellow Christian, the brother or sister that's sitting right next to us. You put it away, all right? And, and think about this just for a moment. That idea of putting away, it's the idea of putting off, verse 22, that will be paired with putting on in a moment. 
And so you think about the brother or sister next to you is in view here. Not simply our neighbor like the person that lives at 107 on your street when you live at 105 or the person that lives at 103. But your brother and sister, the one who bears the name of Christ, who pledges faith in in Jesus. Right? Now I want to move on here for a moment. We, We set that aside. We shed it like a dirty garment, this speaking falsehood, this living deceitfully, this speaking lies. And we must distinguish between the temptation to be deceitful or to say what's not true, where we fight that, we flee that, we put it to death, Romans eight thirteen. we war against it and the actual committing of the sin. But let's move on to what then this ninth commandment requires. More than not lying, speak truth with his neighbor. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And I believe that's a direct reference to Zechariah 8.16. And so if putting away falsehood is this putting off that is our response to the gospel and God's redemptive and restorative work in us, then the words let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. It's the putting on the new life that fits, that is ours, that is right. It's not like we shed all our clothes and run around naked. That's not the idea in the gospel. We shed this old self and put on the new, all right? We put on the new life that fits, that's ours, that's right, That's exactly what walking in new life in the Spirit looks like. Paul says in Galatians 5, if you live by the Spirit, let us also walk or let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Put off. Put on. Do not lie. Speak truth. Laying aside falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. There are two things here. Do not blend these together initially. I want you to think about Ephesians 4.25 in a new way. I'm going to challenge you to think of it. There are two things. They're distinct. They're not the same. They're not equal, but they are two sides of the same coin. So one, in that verse, the first part of the verse, having put away falsehood, it is a participle, It's you've done this, and now here's the imperative. Don't be saying two plus two is nine. Be asserting that two plus two, in fact, is four. Do not deceive your neighbor, but neither destroy them. And so you'd say, how do we do this? Do not deceive by lying falsehood and by bearing false witness against them. We owe our neighbor the truth. But there's more. We must also not destroy our neighbor by our tongues, by our speech. We're to speak with one another with these guidelines in mind. And I want to give you three briefly for how we're to speak the truth with one another. I want to give you three again briefly. Number one, our truth-telling must advance what we've learned in Christ. The context when Paul says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
the context here is what we have learned in our learning in Christ. And so our truth telling, our speaking must advance that. It must advance God's priorities for us as his children, as followers of Jesus. Children of our heavenly father, followers of Jesus, temples of the Holy Spirit. And you see it in the verses preceding, verse 25, between 17 and 24. We are this community that's putting off the old self. We're going through a renewal of our minds, a renewing of our minds, a.k.a. Romans 12.1. And we're putting on this new self, created after the likeness of God, Paul says in verse 24, that's taking place in true righteousness and holiness. So number one, our truth-telling must advance God's purpose for us in Christ. Number two, our truth-telling must be a speaking the truth in love. Paul, in fact, says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. There's no virtue in speaking our mind without restraint. That's not a spiritual gift to open your mouth without any regard for how it impacts the other person. Bluntness or curt speech, again, is not a spiritual gift or a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that is the composite fruit of the Spirit. In fact, Proverbs says that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And so I ask you, like when you read a recipe and it speaks of equal parts of A, ingredient A, ingredient B, when you speak, do you speak in equal parts truth and equal parts sweetness? Or are you negative, sarcastic, blunt, presumptive, harsh, unkind? Let me give you three words. Bees like honey. And so do people. Our truth-telling, this is the third application here, is that our truth-telling, speaking the truth in love must not deceive, but it must not destroy. It should be constructive and upbuilding. I want to give you something that we learned in many years in construction is we always made money in demolition phases of projects, and it was much more challenging to be profitable in the constructive phase of projects. Anyone could take a sledgehammer and rapidly destroy, but building positively, constructing, is much more difficult. But our speech should be constructive and upbuilding. So at the end of Ephesians 4, verse 29, Paul writes something and there's something a bit obscure in this if you listen to what he says in 429. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Those hurtful words might be 
in your mouth. Those corrupting, the elements of corrupting talk might be right there in your mouth. But Paul says, keep them there. Don't open the gate. Don't let them out. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. There's nothing meritorious about simply teeing off on others, but prayerfully, thoughtfully thinking before we speak and asking, will this build this person up? Yes, this is more than not lying and speaking falsehood and deceit. It's speaking truth in such a way that it sanctifies. It builds up. It advances the spiritual life of every person with whom you interact. Let me ask this. Do your words give grace? When people leave a conversation with you, is the aroma of Christ coming off of them because you've you have exuded that in their presence with your words? Do your words increase the aroma of Christ around those with whom you're interacting and fellowshipping? We've thought about God as the one true God as the starting point of this commandment. We've seen what's forbidden. We've talked a bit now about what this commandment requires. I want to end here as we think about the very heart of the ninth commandment, that we are members of one another. It's our motive. Some of you know that Pastor Jamie, I think, I don't know if it's original with you, brother, about the one another's in the New Testament. It's not. But for many, many years, Pastor Jamie has talked about, preached. He's, he's uh, just placed in his messages lots of references on how we live out these one another's in the New Testament. And here's one of them. That the reason we are to, having, having put away falsehood, okay, having put that off, Paul says, let each of us speak the truth with his neighbor. There's the imperative. There's the commandment. And here's his reason. Here's the motive. It is that you and I are members of one another. It's the whole motivation. Or it's the motivation for the whole of Paul's words in Ephesians 4.25. We don't live on an island. And that doesn't mean we all sound like the same note. Just as in 30 minutes, there'll be sopranos and altos and tenors and basses. I think there'll be a pianist and maybe a couple of violins and perhaps Maybe another instrument or two, I'm not. It sounds like that. And they don't all sound the same. And at points, they won't even all sound the same note. But they'll be together, and we're looking for not a cacophony, an evil sound, but a good sound, a beautiful sound, like what the body would look like when we're caring for one another. When you speak, let me ask this, when you speak to a brother or sister, are you just simply trying, do you find yourself more trying to vent, correct, or how much of your speech is there to build up your brother and sister? 
We can't be uncaring for how our words impact one another. I think some of you remember as you look at the Ten Commandments, don't forget that the first and the second and the tenth deal with the heart. Right? No other gods before me, no idols. The tenth you shall not covet. But the third, you shall not take God's name in vain. And the ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Have to do with our mouths. It's the fourth through the eighth that deal with our hands. God intends that this member, though very small, but what possesses death and life in capacity be used for good in his body. I want you to know a little bit about this word one another here. It's alone. You know that when something's homogenous, it's like all of one character. But the idea of an alloy is different materials in interaction and proximity with one another. We say it of an alloy. So when he speaks of one another here, it's the idea of us being together but being together as a community of different composition. And he says, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The idea of neighbor is one who is near. The idea here of that we are members of one another, members of one another is this idea of a community that is together as composite, but different with differences in character for each, okay? And so the care that we give in the body to one another by our faithful speaking to one another in love is within this community a diversity. In fact, this morning at the end of the service, I noticed we have three women whose native tongue is Mandarin speaking to each other in the back, Okay? We're not all alike. You know, we have Spanish speakers here. We have Portuguese speakers here. We have some of us who are still struggling with English. We have Mandarin speakers, all that. But we're obviously, and we're obviously not all alike, but we're called to use our tongues not to deceive, not to destroy, but to speak the truth wisely, to speak the truth gently, to speak the truth constructively and in love for one another. Let me suggest just kind of a, an application or two here is how good it is to ask a good friend or your mate if you're not married to ask and say, when I speak, do I build others up? Do I encourage? Am I on the plus side or on the minus side? Is my speech an asset to the world <laughs> or is it a liability? Or when I speak, do I drone on and on? so that people just are waiting for me to shut up. I want to give another application here. Children, I want to just talk to you for a minute. If you ever feel the temptation to lie or not tell the whole truth, okay, would you believe that your mom and dad face that same temptation sometimes? You know that? That's not just something that children feel. Even parents do. Parents, can we agree that sometimes it's real easy to not always say to be completely truthful? 
Maybe some of you, that's no temptation at all. But to others, you have to fight that. You have to put that to death. And you know that we've already read from Proverbs 6 that God hates lying lips. We've read in Titus 2 that God cannot lie. We've read in Hebrews 6 that it's impossible for God to lie. We heard from Balaam in Numbers 23 that God is not a man that he should lie. But that's the whole point of Christmas. This is great. This is beautiful. But imagine if we had on these walls, Matthew 121, the angels saying to Jesus' Father, to Joseph, let me tell you the name you're supposed to give him. You give him the name Jesus because it is he who will save his people from their sins. And I want to close, and I want you to look at, at 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. I'll read for us. We've been here a number of times in, um, in the last number of weeks, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you lie as a habit, if you lie frequently or constantly, if it doesn't bother you to lie and you're uncaring, then you can have no confidence that the kingdom of God is for you. You cannot. Because when God changes your heart, what God is the true God does is he give, gives new hearts that have all the basic characteristics of what God is like. God is love. God is true. God is faithful. And so what God is shaping in his people in a new covenant community is shaping a people who long to love, who long to be of the truth. 1 John 2.21. That 1 John, John says this. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. But so as Paul is finishing here in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives a whole list of things, like short little words, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And no doubt Paul was very familiar with the Ten Commandments and the two great commandments about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in our neighbor as himself. And no doubt these words were a reflection of Paul's own knowledge and understanding of the Ten Commandments. But Paul says this in verse 11. He says, such were some of you. There were other gods besides gods before you. You did make idols out of created things. You did take God's name in vain. You did not regard the Lord's day as holy. You did not honor your mother and your father. If you did not murder, you hated. If you did not commit adultery, you lusted. You've stolen. 
you've lied. And as we'll see next Sunday morning, you've coveted, which equals idolatry. But Paul says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God, the true God, is the God who saves those who have borne false witness. He is the true God who saves those who've had lying lips. He's the true God, the one who is truth himself, the one whose son has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, who will take those of us who have deceived, who have misrepresented, who have exaggerated, who have borne false witness, who have bold-faced lied to those who loved us most. And he will wash you. He will sanctify you. His grace, his true grace, is for those who've abandoned the truth. Come to him. Don't let anything get in your way. Run, run, run towards the light that is Jesus, Emmanuel.